So Felix, this week we have a fascinating interview with Faith Hillis about her new book, Utopia's Discontents, Russian Exiles and the Quest for Freedom, 1830s to the 1930s. And I really enjoyed this uh, immensely. And, you know, it, it it's really struck to some things in my own personal experience and amongst politics. But I wanted to ask you, have you ever uh, participated in, you know, a political or other kind of subculture? I would say I've never been part of any kind of official organization uh, in any significant way. But I think that the closest that I can say in terms of a subculture I've participated in is the queer subculture in Chicago, um, just LGBT youth, vaguely leftist social circles. Uh, and definitely kind of a, like an artistic subculture, um, mostly when I was in high school. It really does show how these relationships shape political movements and ideology, but also the tendency for these to serve as, as spaces of regulation. So this is one of the things I looked at in my dissertation is how political movements begin to regulate each other uh, as, a, as a point of their identity. And, and here you get like right down to how one goes about their everyday life, the clothes they wear, what they read, or in cases of music subcultures like punk rock and others, it really came down to the type of music you listen to that defines, you know, are you punk or are you a sellout? Did you have any similar experiences in the LGBT TQ circles in Chicago? You know, I mean, in my experience, I certainly don't want to speak broadly, but um, the the section of it that, that I found myself running in was very much like, I don't know, you have to have like a stick and poke tattoo and like do your own composting. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and there is a certain kind of like, this is one of the reasons why I ended up getting out of it is that it seemed like there were these like ideological purity tests you have to pass um and kind of even if even if according to to one arbiter who was looking at your performance on this test you had passed there would be another one who would say no you've absolutely completely failed it and i don't know you're some kind of like heterosexual fascist um and that was extremely off-putting to me uh, just because of the authoritarian undertones of that. Um, but like, certainly I can think, I don't know, like, it's like, you can't, you, you like, you couldn't like RuPaul's Drag Race, for example, um, which like, you know, of course it has, it's many, 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 many issues, but, um, I like it. <laughs> So, you know, I, I was I was very I was very bad at the at the ideological tests and I don't know how to compost. So and I don't have a stick and poke tattoo. Well, hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Felix Helbing. Sadly, this is Felix's last week of his internship at the SRB podcast, uh, so I wish him well and I hope he enjoyed the experience. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. 
If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So, Felix, why don't you introduce our guest today, Faith Hillis? Sure thing. Faith Hillis is a professor of Russian history at the University of Chicago. She's the author of Children of Rus, Right Bank Ukraine and the Invention of a Russian Nation. Her most recent book is Utopia's Discontents, Russian Exiles and the Quest for Freedom, 1830 to 1930, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Faith Hillis. So Faith, it's it's really nice to talk to you again. You know, I was um, going down memory lane and I think you're like the second interview I did for this podcast. I think you were on the second episode way back in 2015. So it's it's nice to have you back after all this time. It's great to be back. Thank you for inviting me. Well, for those of who might not know you, um, why don't you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Faith Hillis, and I work on modern Russian history. I teach at the University of Chicago, where I've been now, unbelievably, since 2010, uh, so 11 years. Um, and I, I guess our first interview was about my former life when I worked on Ukraine. Uh, and we were talking, I think, in the midst of the crisis over uh, Donetsk and Crimea. Uh, and I decided to do something really different for my second book, which was to work on revolutionary immigrant communities uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So that's what I do. Yeah, so your new book is called Utopia's... Your new book is called Utopia's Discontents, Russian Immigrants and the Quest for Freedom from the 1830s to the 1930s. So how did you get from, say, looking at Ukrainian nationalism to, to this? There were a few reasons I decided to make this change. Some were personal and some were professional. So I guess on, on the personal front, I was just thinking about how to sort of set up my life and how to, you know, how to work seriously in this field, given that... Uh, the lifestyle that I had when I was researching my first book, you know, living in Ukraine for a year was no longer really feasible for me. Um, so, I, and also as as access conditions in Russia have just getting the right visa and you know getting all your archival documents and whatnot have gotten more difficult. Um, thinking about how I could you know most effectively research Russian history while not living in the region. Um, so I was thinking practically about. Sources, actually. That's always where I began as a historian. That's really where I get excited getting into the archive. But I was, I was, I think, quite thoughtful in setting up this project and saying sort of, what do I want to do? So I had all that on my mind. And um, as I was sort of hunting around for a second project, a colleague had mentioned to me actually rather offhandedly, he probably doesn't even remember that uh, he had been working at the Hoover Archives at Stanford, where I had done a little bit of work before. And that the archives of the Paris Ahrana, which was uh, charged with surveilling the revolutionary immigration, were all there. The story of how they got there is crazy and is itself actually uh, a book topic. They, uh, when the revolution happened in 1917, the ambassador knew that uh, the Bolsheviks would come looking for the documents and he basically hid them. They disappeared and um, no one knew where they were. And this is something like, it's a huge collection. It's like I don't know, it was 81 steamer trunks, I think, um, 
is this Ocarina archive. Um, but he had actually spirited it away to Hoover in the midst of the Russian Revolution with the stipulation that it not be opened until his death, which happened in 1959. So in 1959, they opened this huge archival document um, collection, and it was actually cataloged by the CIA because they saw the operations of the Ochrana as a, as a precursor to the KGB and were interested in learning about it. So anyway, there's this great collection at, um, at Stanford. It's definitely been rifled through. It's not complete, but it is much easier to work with than the police uh, collections that I had worked with in Russia just archivally because it's well um, it's well, uh, it's, it's well cataloged, but also it, it was just easier for me to get to Stanford. So I made a couple quick trips there and just started reading these, this archive, not really quite knowing where I was going. And I think pretty quickly after just beginning to dip my toes in that collection, I realized that there was a lot to be said about this pre-revolutionary immigration. Uh, of course, there's been a great deal of writing about the so-called first wave of, of immigration after the revolution, but actually much, much less about what was happening um, before the revolution in terms of where people lived, how they lived, uh, the connection between the ways that in which they lived and their thinking. And so as I read these uh, these documents of the Akrana surveilling these immigrants, the project began to come together um, fairly quickly, I would say. You know, you are you are stepping into a large literature of the Russian revolutionary movement looked at from a variety of different, you know, political movements and individuals. Um, and and from I get the impression just from within the inter even from the introduction that there is a bit of a, you know, dissatisfaction or a big gap. Something's missing in this history. Uh, so. With Utopia's discontents, what, what story are you trying to tell? The thing that struck me most as I started reading these very rich surveillance reports was that when we think about the Russian Revolution or when we think about the revolutionary movement, okay, so there's great social histories of the revolution itself, right, and the lead up to the revolution. Uh, but when we think about the revolutionary movement, it's mainly an intellectual history. And actually, it's a very high intellectual history that's about the debates, the ideas, you know, the populists versus the Marxists and all this kind of stuff. And obviously, it's crucial to understand that history. But to me, as I read it, I have to say, as I read it in grad school, actually, I never found that literature very interesting, because I just found it very dry, to be frank. And um, I believe that there's a really important story of experience Im embedded in these debates, in these ideas themselves. And I argue in the book that actually, you can't take the ideas out of the experience. Um, you can't look at them in this disembodied way, because I argue that the experience was actually crucially important in shaping the ideas. So I, I, I wanted to tell that story, which is at the center of the book. And I guess another kind of addendum to that is, uh, maybe we can talk about this later, but I began becoming interested in digital history, and in particular mapping in the course of working on this book. And that attuned me to this question of space. Uh, and again, this is part of the experience, right? Like, what does it what does it feel like to live in this tiny, incestuous, very intense immigrant neighborhood in Paris? But then also, how do I conceptualize what it means to live in that neighborhood in Paris, but be thinking about Russia constantly and not really be engaging with Parisian life whatsoever? And to have all these smuggling networks that I'm running that's that's getting literature back to Russia, and then to constantly be traveling to party conferences. So. Um, trying to incorporate space into experience, I guess, was another important aim of the project. 
before you you joined us, Felix and I were chatting, and it reminded me of um, and and that's actually where I first met you, like it, doing research in Russia. And you're in this very your small community that you gravitate to of of foreign researchers in Russia, uh, Americans, Europeans, etc. And you have these incredibly intense relationships, right? There's something about exile that you know. I mean, not we weren't exiled, but there's something about being in the in this situation where these intense relationships form it, it so talk a bit more about that that importance of space and and what does being an exile within this insular community shape those relationships so so two themes emerged from the book um and there's a bit of a tension between them so one was the exile as an expansive space Exile as, you know, getting you out of the constraints of the situation. In the case of my protagonist, it's the constraints are pretty severe, right? It's being constantly harassed, followed by the czar's secret police and, and being arrested, right? So so they my my protagonists talk about just what it means when you've lived your whole life running away from the law, as it were, um, suddenly having that taken off your shoulders and the um, space for imagination, reimagination, just envisioning what a new society would look like. Um, added in this, uh, being in this new locale where, uh, as I previously said, a lot of these immigrants are very poorly uh, integrated into local societies, but there are elements of local society that really matter to them. And I would say expand this imagination of immigration further. So for example, just being in Paris, many of them talk about you know, just the idea that I'm in the city that invented revolution. This is the way that they think about it. And and what can I learn from being here? What can I imbibe? Um, in Germany, they're very impressed in the 1870s already at the sophistication of workers' organizations and workers' activism. And they're, um, you know, they're not seeking to emulate it, but they're seeking to learn from it and to to take that experience and eventually bring it back to Russia. So that's the expansiveness. Uh, but there's also this kind of limiting element of, of exile, as as you alluded to, and that is because these people are living in tiny enclaves um, that are, you know, yeah, being an expat is an intense experience, but it's it's still difficult to compare to the kind of intensity that these folks had in the late 19th century, where they're, you know, literally reading all day long, all night long. They don't have food. All they have is books. Um, and they talk about this very vividly, you know, like people who fall in love with their wife over reading Kant together in a reading circle. They're very intense people and ideas do matter to them. So I'm not at all trying to discount the importance of intellectual history. I'm just trying to say that there's sort of like this embodied element to it. So anyway, they're living these super intense lives, having debates all night long, um, having you know, love affairs, but then love affairs that break down because they disagree about ideology, uh, all this kind of stuff. And um, this does lead to ultimately in my story, the dissolution of, of these communities that had once been expansive and familial um, and, and safe and comfortable, but also spaces for imagination, simply because people take these ideas and these disputes that emerge from the ideas so seriously that they basically can't live together in the end. Um, so that's the trajectory of the book. Yeah. And you also have, you know, these people are, a lot of them are quite eccentric, intense characters, right? I mean, this kind of something, there's a certain, I don't know, personality type that goes along with this kind of a lifestyle. And I, I would imagine, you know, this is one of the things the intellectual history doesn't really capture, I think, is the personalities that are are really working in these communities. 
Exactly. I, I mean, some of the anecdotes that came out of this story, <laughs> this research were just mind blowing. So one example is um, a Stepniak, um, the pseudonym of, of um, Kravchinsky, who is a, a revolutionary populist of the 1870s who uh, assassinates a czarist official with a stiletto. So he assassinates this official, successfully flees to Europe, lives there for many years, and he dies in London because he's crossing train tracks, reading a book, so engrossed in the book that he doesn't hear the train coming and the train runs him over. And so little details like that, that I think are missed, really convey you know, who this person was and what mattered to him. And again, the fact that one could be so engrossed in a book, they could not be aware of an oncoming train is mind boggling, <laughs> but speaks volumes. <laughs> right, totally. So why don't you uh, set the scene for us uh, in, in Russia and Europe in, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, where a lot of these people are having to flee Russia. Um, you know, how do they how do they get to Europe and, and why do they go? Like, why do they go to certain places in Europe? Okay, so that's actually a big question. Let me try to break it down um, because essentially in the book there are three different constituencies that I follow uh, as exiles. The first may be the most unconventional, uh, and that is university students. Uh, there's of course a long tradition of Russian subjects studying in Europe. It goes back uh, actually to the era of the Hetmanate. It goes back very far, um, but already in the early 19th century, Germany in particular was a very popular destination for young noble men from educated families. Uh, but my story starts, my story is uh, focused around these so-called Russian colonies, which were actually discernible communities of, of Russian subjects living abroad. And I trace the beginning of these, these colonies to the 1860s. And uh, this was associated with um, the revocation of an edict in the mid-60s that had allowed Russian women to uh, sit in university courses. It's revoked in 1864, and about 500 women, Russian women, go abroad to Zurich, which has recently co-educated its university. Um, following the women are Russian men who go with them. Many of them are married or romantically involved uh, to these women, but some just go um, because it's you know easier to get access to Swiss universities. And once you get these students there, you also get this group of political radicals who are living abroad. So this is the guys who've previous small circles who've previously been abroad: Herzen, Bakunin, Lavrov, etc. So again, it may be somewhat unconventional to think of students as exiles, but what I argue in the book is that as these students get involved with these political radicals, many of them actually become revolutionaries themselves, meaning that they can't go back home. And basically, for all intents and purposes, they become part of this, this revolutionary immigration. They're radicalized abroad, as it were. Um, the second constituency I already mentioned is these political radicals. Uh, as I said, they're already there uh, in the mid-19th century. They began in the 1830s, speed up in the 1840s, 50s, um, 60s. Um, but it's really in the 70s and 80s where the scale of this political immigration massively increases. And that's because of the advent of, of political terrorism and just the, the general growth and radicalization of the revolutionary movement. So by about 1880, we're talking about um, thousands of revolutionaries abroad, uh, whereas in the 70s, it had been really in the, in the hundreds. Um, and by the 90s, it grows to tens of thousands. So that's my second group. Uh, the third group is the most numerically significant. And again, it may be unconventional to think of them as exiles, although I'll explain in a moment why I do so. 
But this is this working class Jewish migration that comes um, beginning in the 1880s, but accelerating in the late 19th century. And uh, this group is quite demographically different from the others. Um, they, in general, are uh, not Russian speakers, actually, they're Yiddish speakers. They're not intellectuals. They're not well-educated. And although many flee pogroms, they're, they're more or less what we would consider today an economic migration. They're, they're, they're moving abroad because you just can't survive in the Pale of Settlement anymore. And they're going to places like America is the favorite destination, but tens of thousands end up in London and Paris where they find work in sweatshops. And these are cities that already have established communities of Russian students and also Russian radicals. Now, we can discuss later how this third group becomes entangled with the political immigrants. They actually initially are separate. They live in their own neighborhoods. They don't have a lot of contacts. Um, but to make a long story short, the political immigrants eventually come into these Jewish neighborhoods. Many of them, the political immigrants and the students, incidentally, are Jews themselves. So they have this kind of connection. They come into these Jewish class Jewish working class neighborhoods and they radicalize, uh, once again, the, the residents. And so you get a kind of like, Russian Jewish revolutionary movement that's speaking both um, and translating between Russian and Yiddish is a is a big part of the story. It's also it's also a multi you know including you know with the with the Jewish population Jewish exiles and the Russians but it's a it's a multi ethnic uh, community within those Russian colonies. Yes, what other groups are do you find there? Yeah, I was really surprised when I began researching this. And I think this is, again, something missing from that traditional intellectual history, which tends to focus on great Russians or on, let's say, you know, Russified Jews like Martov, for example. Um, there are large numbers of Armenians who are living abroad, who are mingling with um, these activists and who have their own revolutionary networks that um, stretch uh, from uh, Geneva through Russia to Iran. Um, there's also many Georgian activists. Um, I also include the Polish immigration. You had these huge waves as a result of the Polish uprisings in the 1830s and 1860s who moved abroad. Again, they're usually considered as their own thing, but it turns out that they were actively involved in these Russian communities as well. Um, so I, I was really surprised to discover that Actually, these communities were minority, were major, majority minority. That is to say that there were actually very few great Russians who lived in them. It was largely people of the imperial periphery. Um, and so in addition to the groups I've already mentioned, Jews are the, are the single greatest number. But um, so you get these sort of imperial minorities all thinking together. Um, most of them can communicate in Russian, ironically, although they're not ethnic Russians, and thinking about the fate of the empire together. And so you get these really interesting kind of federalist schemes and, and things like this as well. So so what was life like for these people in exile? I mean, um, you know, you mentioned it a little bit with the various intrigues and poverty and this <laughs> getting hit by trains and things. What was how do you understand that life? So life is difficult in many respects. Uh, in addition to the internecine struggles, um, poverty, which you mentioned, is just a huge struggle. Um, there's many of these people subsist on bread and water for days on end. They're just really struggling to make it. Uh, I, uh, other amazing anecdotes I found is we don't think about these um, great Russian intellectuals working in this incredible precarity, but um, it turns out that Pavel Axelrod, who's one of the founders of Russian Marxism, 
was working on all kinds of different jobs. He was a banister polisher and he had other menial labor jobs. I can't recall um, the details, um, but really struggling to support his family as it's growing. And eventually he finds work and success and manages to support his family and his writings by becoming an artisanal kefir maker of all things. And he opens this actually very successful kefir factory in, in Zurich. Um, but there's this struggle for economics. What is it? I'm sorry. What is a kefir? <laughs> kefir? Kefir <laughs> yeah. is, um, is a fermented milk product. It's like yogurt, but it's a little more oh, sour. Kefir, kefir in Russian. Yes, yes, yes. Now I know. Kefir in Russian. But it was very, it was seen as a, he discovered it apparently because he also had health challenges like many immigrants. I think he was tubercular and um, a doctor had recommended it, but it was virtually impossible to obtain in Switzerland. So he just started making his own and it sort of took off. <laughs> so um, so the, the struggle for economic subsistence is a real one and it runs throughout the story. Um, but I guess what was really interesting and shocking to me as I researched this was despite this precarity and also people were constantly moving, they were constantly moving because they were evading landlords, because the legal uh, situation in the countries they were living in were constantly changing and they were going to places where they'd have more rights. Uh, but in spite of this constant precarity, what these immigrants were able to build was incredible. They built these really dense networks of coffee shops bookstores, libraries, workers' cooperatives. They uh, built voluntary organizations that, that spoke for the immigration as a whole, that distributed mutual aid and literature across borders. They built intricate smuggling networks that got into sort of every corner of the Russian empire, um, smuggling people out, smuggling literature in. So I, I think for me, what was astonishing is yeah, both things coexist, the constant precarity and poverty, but also uh, thinking about exile as a space for imagination. It really is incredible what they what they were able to do. And, you know, at the end of the story, the, the sort of punchline of, of the story is just as things seem like they're falling apart in Europe, the Russian Revolution happens, um, which is, of course, a shock to everyone. They're, they're quite isolated from it. And they're, they had no idea that this was happening. But all these immigrants immediately mobilized and manage in the midst of World War One, where, you know, they're still being bombed by U-boats in the Baltic Sea and whatnot, um, and, and borders are closed. They manage, they manage to get back to Russia and to become major political players. So it's, it's really, I guess, an extraordinary story of what people just with determination and conviction can actually do despite the despite all of the challenges that they faced. Uh, Felix, you want to jump in? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this has all been really interesting so far. Like, I'm, I'm just kind of like sitting here going like, wow. Um, but, uh, so one of the things that, that I think is really interesting is like these people are, you talk about in the book, how, uh, utopia and dystopia, like Marxism is as much a lifestyle and an experience as it is, uh, a, a belief or a political philosophy. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about, uh, the definition of utopia and dystopia within these communities? Like how was utopia and dystopia lived and imagined by these people in their daily lives? Um, so the question of utopia is a really important one because a, a challenge that I faced in thinking through that term and working with that term in the book is that, uh, of course, the initial coinage of the term is meant to signify its impossibility, right? That it's a reverie, that it's 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 no place, right? Um, that it's an imagined place, that it's unrealizable. 
Um, and I was actually really agitating against that um, because as I just suggested, I think these people, despite the challenges and despite the dystopian elements of these communities, mad, you know, claimed that they were going to reinvent the world and they actually did. Um, so what do I do with that, right? So I ended up using uh, the theory of a um, interwar Marxist theorist named Ernst Bloch, who who thinks about the idea of utopia not as an idea, but as a as a praxis, actually, as a form of lived experience, not as um, you know some impossible goal, but as something that we work toward through daily life. And so I use that theory to think through the ways that um, these revolutionary lifestyles helped to inform these revolutionary ideas that, that, that these um, activists promoted. So we've already talked, for example, about um, the internal ethnic diversity of these emigrate communities. And I, I would say that um, I think this fact shows in the ways that these different groups managed to get along and build things together shows that uh, you know, internationalism is not just kind of a distant idea in these communities. It's actually a daily practice. When an Armenian marries a Jew and they live on top of a pole and their best friend is from Siberia, that means something, right? And this is a different way of building communities than even revolutionaries in Russia have, right? Where it's good, it's people are going to be in more ethnically um, homogeneous situations. Um, similarly, I mentioned the female students as kind of the backbone of these communities and feminism and the struggle for women's rights, but in a revolutionary vein, also as a major, um, a major theme of the book. And I look at the ways in which emigration uh, opened up new opportunities um, for living as a sort of empowered free woman and how these women took advantage of, of this. So that's the, the framework that I use for utopia. Um, I think I understand dystopia, again, not as saying, haha, utopia is impossible, told you so, but actually thinking about the dystopian practices that emerge from these communities as actually kind of an unwitting result of the actual utopian praxis that they established. So for example, um, I talked about how intimacy is a really important part of these communities and their utopian ideals. The fact that people are able to build trust and build relationships and overcome linguistic and religious and ethnic boundaries. But it turns out that intimacy is also, it has this dark side too, right? And this is also integral in the collapse of, of these communities. Um, and one example I'll give you of this is where I started with that parasakrana. So one of the things that the Akhrana does to demoralize the immigration is they send agents provocateurs and um, you know, sort of double agents into these communities who take advantage of the trust that people have of one another who are informing on, on immigrants. And it creates a situation in which people are constantly paranoid. Is my friend actually my friend or is he an informant? And there's a way of thinking like, oh, you know, this is a pathology of these communities, but it, it was, but it was real. So I think like four of Lenin's five secretaries in immigration were informants. <laughs> and basically, um, these double agents had gotten to positions that were high enough in all the revolutionary parties that they were actually making policy. So we have this problem where, uh, you know, a lot of the, the Bolshevik expropriations, for example, that are occurring in the early 20th century a lot of those are being pushed by police double agents. <laughs> so I think this poses a really interesting intellectual problem that these intellectual historians have not quite grappled with yet either. Uh, you know, Faith, I, and this idea of, of utopia too, you know, I'm, I was reminded of, uh, I, think it's, I think it's Edward Said writes this famous essay about the exile. 
right? And the imagination of the homeland. Um, you know, these people are, they're kind of, you know, hurried out of the country in some case, out of Russia, the Russian empire in some cases. Uh, and their, you know, their daily lives are kind of, it's, you know, preoccupied with home, right? Revolution at home, the conditions at home. What, what do you say about the, how did they imagined, you know, being disconnected far away, you know, given the communication networks, et cetera, how did they imagine, you know, home, but you know, the, what was going on in the Russian empire and the politics there and how did that fit into their, you know, ideological debates and intrigues? Yeah, I, I think that changes over the course of my story. So in the late 19th century, you see this belief that revolution is imminent, that it's going to happen at any moment and we just have to be ready to, to strike, right? Um, but by the early 20th century, that really begins to change. And especially in the aftermath, of course, 1905 is this really crucial moment where people think, aha, it's finally come. And many of them, again, managed to return to Russia briefly. Um, and the disillusionment after that event is, is really profound. Um, so, you know, I think, I, think both, I think both the belief that the revolution is imminent in the 19th century and then the belief in the early 20th century that it's never going to happen are, are both misgiven, right? And, and they're misgivings because, the, as you said, these people are just so detached um, from Russia itself. And the Russia that they're obsessed with and debating is in many cases just a figment of their imagination because they have no idea what Russia's like. I mean, Plekhanov, uh, the Marxist theorist, uh, Kropotkin also, they leave Russia in 1879 and they're abroad until 1917. And so imagining, you know, what it means to spend literally 50 years away from the homeland that you spend your time obsessing about. I mean, I, th I think it speaks to the, um, the difficulty of, of knowing what's going on. Of course, they have correspondence and whatnot, uh, telling them what's going on in Russia, but their view is very is very skewed. Um, so, <laughs> I think one of the more interesting moments in the book happens uh, actually in early 1917, where the final part of the book is just talking about the complete dissolution of these communities, where the the dystopian elements really prevail over the utopian. This has to do with the letdown from 1905, but also just the troubled internal dynamics of of these spaces that people had seen as potential cradles of revolution. And I forget if it's January or February 1917, um, but also the, the war is going on, right? And um, World War I is also just a hugely disillusioning moment for these emigres because it shows them that at least for most European radicals, that internationalism is a lie, right? That most of the European radicals line up and support the war in this patriotic endeavor. So anyway, in um, January or February 1917, Lenin gets up in Zurich, where he's uh, living in exile now. Um, he can't go anywhere else in Europe at this point. He gives a speech basically saying, I was wrong. <laughs> it's one of the only times I've ever seen Lenin admit he was wrong. I was wrong. The revolution's not going to happen in our lifetime. I only hope that it happens in the lifetime of the new generation that is coming abroad. And of course, the czarist regime falls like four weeks later, much to his surprise, right? He has nothing to do with it. So um, so I think that speaks to, um, I guess, just how detached they were, um, which, which poses the problem when they return of 1917 of trying to go back and make politics and continue the revolution finally in this place that they just literally have no idea what's, what it's like anymore. 
I have been thinking about uh, what you said earlier about the different waves of, of immigration. Um, and uh, one of them you mentioned is uh, a a wave of immigrants who are like working class and, and uneducated, not, not political exiles or anything like that. And in the reading that I have done around the emigrate communities, like one of the things that has always been interesting to me is the class dynamics. So like, how did these revolutionaries interact with these working class people? Like, was there, was there actual, like, um, kind of, the word that's coming to mind imperfectly is like cross-pollination, but like, you know, um, like interaction uh, or like how, how did they navigate class dynamics like this? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's one that is kind of problematic uh, over the, the course of my history. There is a way in which some of these intellectuals go into these working class neighborhoods, definitely wanting to replicate their own cultures, right? So um, I had mentioned that these Russians abroad had set up bookstores, canteens, mutual aid associations, etc. And they go into these working class Jewish neighborhoods and begin to do the same thing. So there is a, a, a process of self-replication going on. And this is something that some of these working class immigrants are sensitive about because uh, at the same time, they not only they not only have these sort of russified revolutionaries coming in. Uh, I, I say russified because most of these revolutionaries are still Jews um, who are able to speak Yiddish and converse with these um, working class folks, but are you know are university educated and sort of versed in Russian culture. Um, they're not the only ones involved in these working class neighborhoods. You also have uh, the European Jewish communities in in London and Paris. Uh, that are working very, very hard to make these um, these new immigrants into ideal bourgeois citizens and to, to 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 get them away from these revolutionaries who are courting them. So there's this kind of tripartite struggle, and there are conflicts between um, between all the sides. But um, I ultimately argue in the book that the Russian revolutionaries win in the battle for influence, and I think there are two reasons for that. One is that these these bourgeois European Jewish communities are just so um, so commandeering that they alienate locals so much. I mean, they, they go in and they try to eliminate the, um, Eastern European prayer houses that they've established. They try to prevent children from speaking Yiddish. They, I have one account of a guy who says, I went to this, um, Jewish organization just looking for a job and they made me shower and gave me a haircut and made me wear new shoes. And, you know, he said, I didn't want all of this. I just wanted a job. So they're so alienated by this bourgeois culture that they're sort of draw, uh, driven into the arms of the revolutionaries, many of them. I, and I should, you know, it's still complex because many of these immigrants do become proper bourgeois citizens and, you know, go on to become respectable Britons or whatever. Um, but the other element is that um, the the revolutionaries, uh, the revolutionary intellectuals, many of them are smart enough to realize, uh, actually, we can't just go in and act like these bourgeois Europeans who are courting these working class people. We need to actually listen to them and listen to their culture. And um, we see already in the 1870s, many of, or at least I shouldn't say many, but some of these um, Jewish intellectuals who had given up Yiddish as the language of you know, uncultured yokels actually take it back and say, actually, if we're going to have 
a Jewish workers movement, it needs to be in the language of the Jewish workers, namely Yiddish. So there is an ability of some of these intellectuals to be sensitive to the culture of Jewish workers and actually to see it not as something that needs to be reformed or changed, but as something that needs to be harnessed and that is a positive. And in the book, I look at this kind of Yiddish democratic um, fusion of the projects of these Russified intellectuals and these Jewish workers. And I look at that as actually kind of the foundation of the Jewish labor boon, which I argue was um, really created in uh, Jewish workers unions in London, and then actually exported to Vilna, um, which is very different from the story that we usually have, right? Which is just about Vilna specific events. I want to talk about Bolshevism because Bolshevism is also born in exile, right? And um, someone once told me, you know, these these doctrinal debates, a lot of them are, you know, these people intellectually and politically are a lot lot closer uh, in the Russian Marxist movement than, you know, we've been, we, we assume. And, and this person told me, you know, what, what really makes someone a Bolshevik as opposed to say a Menshevik is that you like Lenin. Now that could be, you know, that's a a very simplistic way, but it just shows, you know, that, and, and this is something that you deal with is that Bolshevism, it's not just this politics, philosophical tradition, it's a lifestyle. So what, what did it mean to be a to live like a Bolshevik in, in these exile communities? So uh, Lenin arrives in exile in 1900, in European exile, I should say, because he's been in Siberian exile, of course. He arrives abroad in 1900, and uh, when he arrives abroad, he's acutely aware of the failings of these these immigrant communities. This is the moment where this utopian promise is really shifting in this in this more dystopian direction. And Lenin is saying, you know, we need to revive Marxism, but we also need to change the nature of these immigrant communities that are basically writing and creating and thinking Russian Marxism. Um, So he immediately begins attacking um, several features of of immigrant life. One is uh, this kind of from below culture that I've alluded to um, of, you know, sort of women speaking out for themselves, intellectuals and workers working together in this more democratic way. Uh, Lenin says this is this is leading to the all of these doctrinal struggles and the dissolution of communities. We need discipline. We need a leader, and of course, that leader is going to be him, right? Uh, but centralization, in short, is is one catch catchphrase that he's promoting, and that had never been an interest of immigrant communities whatsoever. In fact, on the contrary, they were more anarchistic previously, like much more, um, you know, grassroots, self directed, etc. Um, he also explicitly attacks this kind of cafe culture that had been a, um, a selling point of, of immigrant life. Um, so he he's particularly critical of Martov, who loves debating in cafes all night long. And he, he says to Martov, basically loose lips sink ships. He says, you know, you're hanging out in cafes all night is going to get us all arrested. It's, it's not good. Um, and this is the concept of conspiratia that he um, that he coins that Lars Lee, I think, has dissected very well, which is the principle that you only talk about things to people who need to know them when they need to know them. Right. So it's, a again, a much more controlled um, element, but as I um, a much more controlled way of um, spreading information. But as I researched this, I also found out that there were these really interesting sort of like lifestyle affectations that, that Lenin took on or ways in which his ideas were actually embodied in, um, in everyday life. Um, so in terms of centralization, 
I, I found one memoir by a Paris Bolshevik who talked about um, when the Bolshevik, so the, I should say the Bolsheviks separated because of Lenin's hatred of these bars and canteens, and they formed their own exclusive Bolshevik district in Geneva, um, where they have their own canteens, their own mutual aid associations, their own libraries that's trying to get all the revolutionary literature, right? No one else is let in. So you see this sort of closure, right, and self-definition. And within this new Bolshevik community that's separate from the rest of the Russian colony, Lenin begins to develop this highly patriarchal culture. It's, it's ironic, I think, that Lenin is remembered as the liberator of, of Russian women, which he, he will later become. How he gets there is another issue. But in immigration, he's deeply patriarchal. And what this means is that um, although the original Bolsheviks consisted of many married couples, the women take on much more traditional roles than revolutionary women had previously taken before. So previous women had been out in the public sphere giving speeches, wearing men's clothes, things like this. In the Bolshevik domain, they're you know handling the correspondence, which is important, but of course traditionally feminine and private, and they're cooking at the Bolshevik canteen, right? So very different role. Um, there's another anecdote by a Paris Bolshevik about how when the Bolsheviks had drinks, Lenin was allowed to order a beer. But all the other Bolsheviks were only able to order grenadine, which was like a children's drink, right? But again, I think it speaks very clearly to that dynamic that Lenin's the big guy we listen to and everyone else are the kids who, who are supposed to follow his paternal advice. So it's very interesting because I think these are elements of the Lenin cult that later develops, but they're already kind of evident in the early 20th century. And much of the immigration really bristles at this. and particularly. The Mensheviks. Um, I think there's a narcissism of small differences as well, where, you know, Martov had been Lenin's really good friend for, since the 1890s. And he sees all this and says, what, what are you doing? This isn't what we've been doing. We've been fighting to build the revolution for two decades. And this is not what it is. You know, it's not about you being allowed to drink beer and everyone else not. Um, and so Martov calls him out. Um, but it does become, a, I think, a kind of attitudinal difference. And I think the, um, the the very intimacy of these networks, like the Lenin-Martov feud, is really epic, precisely because these men have been best friends for 20 years. It makes the stakes higher in some way. Uh, yeah, so I, I was just laughing while you were saying this. Um, the uh, question that I wanted to ask next, I mean, you kind of uh, answered it, but you know, clearly we know that, that life among the uh, revolutionaries in exile was full of drama. So I'm wondering if you have any more stories like that. Um, like what, what comes to mind for me is that, so I, I do research on Bogdanov and he does a lot of, uh, in his books there, he just goes on these like random diatribes. My favorite one is about Plakhanov where he goes on for like six pages about basically just being like, Plakhanov, like his ideas are stupid and he smells bad and I hate him essentially. So like wondering if there's any any more stuff like that that's really stuck out to you as interesting. It's high yeah, these disputes are, are highly personalized and I think that's what you're getting at. And it's like the the longer people have known each other, the the more they can really get under each other's skin, right? With these really personal things. Um, I think one one thing that comes to mind is, is actually the Second Party Congress, right? So this is the Congress at which the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks famously split. Um, but here's another venue in which I think we focused on these, I, these intellectual histories without focusing on the interpersonal drama. 
So in addition to the, before this Bolshevik-Menshevik split, there was actually another split that happened at that Congress that was even more consequential. And that was the culmination of this long running fight between um, Orthodox Marxists, namely Lenin and, and Martov and friends, the, the Iskra group, and um, a more economist tendency that was uh, represented particularly by the Jewish labor boom. And there had been really, really, really ugly debates between Lenin's group and the Bund in 1903 around a series of pogroms that happened and um, Jewish activists sort of saying the Bolsheviks aren't speaking out enough against anti-Jewish violence and against working class anti-Semitism. And Lenin basically comes back and says, there's no such thing as working class anti-Semitism. It's a bourgeois phenomenon. Um, And we're not talking about any things of particular interest to Jews. So anyway, there's this very ugly lead up. But at the conference itself, there's a very, very bitter split at which essentially the boon finally loses and is told by the Orthodox Marxists, including Martov, no, you're not going to have any kind of autonomy. You're not the voice of the Jewish proletariat, etc. Um, now, Martov, it turns out, had actually been involved in the founding of the Bund um, in Vilna in the in the 1890s. So he has a very long history with these with these people. Um, and Trotsky, who's also, of course, Jewish, comes out as well very strongly against against the Bund. And there are these memoirs. Um, well, if you first of all just read the the discussion at the conference, it is bitter and very personal. Um, Trotsky says. Um, to Bund activists, you know, I'm a Jew and I don't follow the Bund. And that proves that you're not the voice of the Jewish proletariat, right? Like, because I don't like you. Um, but, but one activist who's, who's there and witnessing these very bitter debates, Vladimir Medem, he's a Bundist, he writes very plaintively. He says that after Trotsky makes these remarks, again, who's been closely involved in these, in these Jewish circles for many years, Medem writes that this is as if his arm has been torn off, that the pain of these very personalized debates um, is just so intense that it's as if he's being, you know, kind of torn apart. And that's something that really has has stuck with me, the, just the pathos of, of that argument. Who, who's your favorite? Who's your favorite of these motley characters? Oh, oh my goodness. I'm not sure. Hmm, that's really hard to say. Like the one you find like most colorful and... Well, I find, I wouldn't say my favorite, but after writing this, I mean, people have asked me, do I like or not like Lenin? Or do I like him more or like him less? And I guess the answer is both. (laughs) (laughs) I find him just, he is by far the most, let's just say he's the most extraordinary revolutionary. And, And delving more into his personal life brings this out. He is, as a person, just a completely miserable human being who... You know, every time he comes into a community, it's as if a grenade has been thrown and it, it immediately falls apart. And just his his ability to unleash chaos is extraordinary. But at the same time, just his sheer, I mean, his political instincts, we see that in 1917, we see that here. Just his understanding of um, the capacity of explosions to kind of reforge society is also just remarkable. So I would say, although I don't find him a personally likable human being, I find him incredibly fascinating. Um, In terms of, I read many, many memoirs, and I will say that um, speaking of Bolshevism as kind of a lifestyle, 
I don't exactly know how to articulate this, so I didn't get into it too much in the book, but there is such a huge difference between the Bolshevik memoirs and everyone else. So the Bolshevik memoirs are just incredibly dull, really devoid of personal detail. I mean, you see why people focus so much on ideas, because they really do just... Every everything is about the doctrinal disputes, and that's that's all that matters. And it's a little bit it's a little bit hard. You have to kind of read them sideways or get at it from other sources um, at sort of what their personal lives were like. But a number of Mensheviks and also Bundists wrote just incredibly wonderful memoirs. Um, so I can recommend some of them. Lydia Dan, I would have to say, who's Martov's sister, she's one of my favorites. Um, really great writer, really interesting memoir. Um, another great memoir by a Bundist who I have some personal issues with, but wonderful writer is Vladimir Medem, who I just mentioned. And I also loved reading the memoir of the Menshevik, um, Pyotr Garvi, really, really great memoir again, about the nature of these immigrant communities. And all of these memoirs are very, very colorful about the dynamics of the colonies. But again, the Bolsheviks have literally nothing to say about any of this. So I have to get it through <laughs> between the reading between the lines. <laughs> the, the way you, you categorize Lenin, it reminds me of um, a description of him that Viktor Chernov wrote in 1917, where he described Lenin as a, um, a, a cue ball that is rolling it doesn't know where he doesn't know where he's going, but he's going there resolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that is exactly it. Yeah. Somehow his like anarchic, chaotic instincts are not quite conscious, but they're usually correct. <laughs> so, you know, after doing all of this, this, you know, writing this book, like, how do you understand the Russian revolutionary movement now as, a, as opposed to when you, you, before you got into it? Well, so one, one of the themes of the book is, is just how important the foreign experience is, right? And it, the Russian Revolution is, of course, a very complex event with many moving pieces. And I, I can't say that it was wholly imported from abroad. But I guess what I can say is that at least the high politics that we recognize as Russian revolutionary politics were absolutely forged abroad and imported from abroad. The mass story is, of course, has its own dynamics. Um, so that's that's one thing. And I think the other thing that really stood out to me is the um, the the personal nature of, of all of this too. I mean, I think we tend to think of the the revolution as this world historical moment, which it of course is. But there's also a way in which I think we need to think of it as the culmination of thirty year long bitter disputes among former friends, right? And so um, I was just talking about the pathos of the second party conference. There's a similar moment that really stood out at me uh, about the moment in 1918 in which the Mensheviks are ejected from the Congress of Soviets. And um, I think the the memoir was actually, this is a um, uncharacteristically, psychologically insightful Bolshevik memoir, but it was written by um, I believe a woman named Yekaterina Drabkina. And she's at the conference and is talking about, um, so Martov is basically told you're going to be ejected. And by this point, he's, he's highly, um, he has very developed tuberculosis. So the stress makes him just have a horrible coughing fit where he's spitting blood. His arm is shaking out of rage and he's trying to put his coat on, but he's coughing so hard and he's so angry and his arm is shaking so hard that he can't get his arm in his coat. And Bolsheviks start making fun of him and just mocking his frailty in this very mean-spirited way. 
Um, because again, as I've, I've mentioned previously, Bolshevism is very masculine and they're always trying to brand the Mensheviks as a, a party of weak Jewish men, right? So this, this whole theme comes out as, as Martov is being mocked. And Martov turns to the Bolsheviks who are mar- mocking him and between coughs says, you know, you laugh now, but wait until Lenin does this to you. And he basically staggers out of the hall. Um, and this woman who had also been present at the third party Congress says, you know, basically it was only at that moment or sorry, at the second party Congress said it was only at that moment that I realized that this this very seemingly personal dispute that I had witnessed in 1903 about style, essentially, um, had become the beginning of this world historical break in which one side, the Bolsheviks represented revolution and the other side, the Mensheviks represented reaction. And so so that for me crystallized that this. Um, intimate, very personalized politics that I describe in immigration never died, right? Like it stayed with these people for the the rest of their natural lives. And it was a heritage that all of the elite Bolsheviks who'd been in immigration were struggling to to grapple with. And finally, you know, if you look at a, a lot of the revolutions of the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, a lot of them are born in exile or some of the main players that come to be main players in those in those revolutions are in exile. I mean, you can think of anyone from Gandhi to Ho Chi Minh to, you know, Lenin, of course, uh, you know, you can even think of the Ayatollah Khomeini, etc. Like it's there's something, you know, exile is seems to be a very important feature of these revolutions. So how do you understand that relationship? between exile and revolution in, in the general, in the modern, you know, as over the last century or so? I mean, actually thinking about this in a broader way is something I'd like to do more in the future. I have to be honest that I haven't quite theorized, right? Like I've, I've worked on the Russian case, but I'm not sure that I have a pat answer for the world historical experience, but I would very much like to in the future working with other colleagues. I will say though, that I think that, um, in the reading that I did on this theme, um, these ideas of imaginative capacity, but also limitations are, are always very clear in the, in the story of these revolutionary exiles. And I think I'll point to another revolutionary exile, Marx himself, as, as providing this model. So, of course, right, the experience of revolution provides an opportunity, of, of exile provides an opportunity for Marx to observe to theorize, to write, to imagine new worlds, to usher them into being. Um, but if you also read, um, Marx wrote, I, I, I cite it in the introduction of the book, but he wrote this very scathing um, parody of, of all the other German revolutionaries in exile, you know, talking about how they're dumb and smelly and stupid and why he's better. So, so you also see this kind of like petty infighting a, as well that I think um, is, is formed in many exile experiences and then remains factors in politics when exiles travel home. So again, maybe I'll have a better answer for this in a few years, but I do think it's, it's something that would be very worthwhile thinking through in a comparative way. You know, in a way, if, I mean, to bring it to a, a kind of more presentist idea that a lot of it seems to be like who's cool and who isn't cool. And the fighting over I'm cooler than you are kind of stuff, right? It's, it's almost like any, you know, in any subculture where it's about style and it's about authority, who defines what is acceptable and unacceptable, a lot of it is about who's the coolest, right? 
Absolutely. And it's also about this sort of groupthink where, yeah, you see, you know, Lenin starts to gain traction and then a bunch of guys say, oh, well, if he's following Lenin, I'll follow Lenin too. Or, you know, if my enemy's following Lenin, then no way I'm following him. Um, so that is definitely a factor in the story as well. That was Faith Hillis. Faith Hillis is a professor of Russian history at the University of Chicago. She's the author of Children of Rus, Right Bank Ukraine and the Invention of a Russian Nation. Her most recent book is Utopia's Discontents, Russian Exiles and the Quest for Freedom, 1830 to 1930, published by Oxford University Press. So Felix, we just listened to Faith talk about the lives of Russian revolutionaries and exiles, which I really incredibly enjoyed the conversation. So what are some of your takeaways? Well, I, I also really just deeply enjoyed this interview um, because particularly because it, I feel like she, she humanizes them. Um, I think most of the time when we talk about uh, the Russian revolutionaries, it becomes a kind of history of ideas that are sort of like floating around in the ether. Um, and Hillis pulls them into uh, the realm of the everyday uh, and shows how there is in these communities an intersection of ideology and daily life. Uh, and then, you know, there are these moments that she points out. Some of them are funny, like Lenin being the only person who's allowed to drink beer at the table. Um, it's like, wow, what a guy. Um, and then, and then some of them are, are tragic in this kind of capital T sense of the term. Like I think of the, uh, when, when Martov is, uh, sick with tuberculosis and he's, uh, you know, getting, getting harassed by the, the party Congress, um, and he's trying to put on his coat and they're all pointing and laughing at him. And then what he says is wait until he does it to you. Um, and I've read, uh, uh, like I've, I've heard of other stories like that from this time period. Um, like it made me think immediately of the, the letter that Bogdanov writes to Lunacharsky at one point where he, he says that, you know, these people who are running this new government don't, don't really believe in what they're doing, but, but Lunacharsky does. So he had, pretty much advises him to get out as soon as he can, because he says they're going to chew you up and spit you out and you won't be able to handle that. Um, and so it shows that as these people are like doing these, you know, they're engaging with political philosophy and like making these big historical changes in the world, but they're also people who have to interact with each other. And whenever people interact with each other, it's messy and, uh, you know, it can be painful and ridiculous. Yeah, you know, like Faith, I also found the books that I read in grad school that talked about the ideologies of Russian revolutionaries and their movements really lacking like human personalities. And, and you know, in these books, when personalities did come up, it was mostly to kind of show in retrospect how the personalities kind of gave birth to these violent ideologies. You especially get this in biographies of Lenin or Trotsky or Stalin and these people. Um, but, you know, the fact that she addresses how people lived in exile and, and the difficulties of living in exile, whether it's, you know, living in poverty, trying to scrape a living together, dealing with your family, trying to evade the cops and the general pressures that, you know, it puts on 
one's ability on top of all of the political intrigue and the debates, you know, how that really does shape the type of movement that emerges from these exile circles. So I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Felix Helbing. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center of Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please share it on social media, tell your friends about it, and please drop us a line on Facebook, you know, write a comment, like the post, share it on Twitter, um, because it really does help like spread the word when you do this. Also, you know, tell us what you think. I'm always interested in, in how um, listeners like the format, about the, the conversations we have, etc. And as always, if you like the SRB podcast, we'd love to have your support. The podcast and all of its various fixings is, is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and various educational institutions to keep it completely free and free from advertisements and paywalls and all of these other things. So please help us keep it that way. So go to um, srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and become a monthly patron by joining the Table of Ranks. Until next week, bye. <laughs>